Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. This is episode 43, Diet Like an Astronaut. I'm Dan Hewitt, and I'll be your host today. And on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, anybody who can let you know about the coolest stuff going on right here at NASA. Today, we're talking about nutrition in space, more specifically what the astronauts have to eat to stay healthy and functional during long-duration spaceflight. There's a lot of folks working on that right here at the NASA Johnson Space Center, including my guest, Dr. Scott Smith, a NASA nutritionist and the manager for nutritional biochemistry. There are some pretty significant differences in the way astronauts have to eat in space versus the way we eat here on Earth, and so we sat down to learn more about what the body needs to thrive in space and how we're preparing to tackle some big challenges for future long-duration missions into deep space. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Scott Smith. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light shirt for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. All right, I'm here with Dr. Scott Smith. Scott, you're the, can I call you Scott? You can call me Scott. Scott, just for the sake of keeping things easy. So you're the manager, and this is a mouthful, as so many of our guests are, for nutritional biochemistry. You're a NASA nutritionist. Start me off, what is what does that mean? What, is, what does your job kind of encompass here? Well, the Nutritional Biochemistry Lab is responsible for, in essence, keeping crews healthy from a nutrition point of view. So we are not the food lab. I'm always very quick to point out, we don't make the tang. I don't have anything to do with the food. <laughs> um, our job is to understand what the body needs. And we, we provide data to the food lab that crew members need this many calories and this much protein or this much carbohydrate or this much vitamin A or vitamin E or vitamin D or iron, copper, sodium, zinc, you name it. So we're really the nutrient end of things. Um, and we do work with the crews to make sure they're eating well. Um, and then we try to study the body um, during flight in ground analogs to try to understand how we can modify nutrition to help keep crews healthier during spaceflight. And it, it kind of amazes me that you go so in-depth. You know, you're not, the astronauts aren't just counting calories. You're counting everything for them. And, I mean, is this, is this something we've always been doing with spaceflight? Well, nutrition's always been important, first of all. Um, and no, we in many cases on on most flights, we've not we've not annoyed the crew with nutrition. Mm. Um, recently, about a year and a half ago, we we flew an iPad app to station that allows the crews to track their dietary intake and they report literally everything they eat every single day, every single meal. Um, they go into the app and and enter what foods they ate. Um, which gives them a real-time look on the iPad of how many calories they're getting. Are they getting enough fluid? Mm-hmm. Are they getting too much sodium? Um, but as you inferred, we get those data on the ground, and, and we work that um, out to uh, 180 different nutrients of all the way down into the grid. We were looking at iodine data this morning um, to give you an idea. And, and really, when you talk about human health and you talk about what we're trying to do, nutrition becomes very, very important. Mm. I mean, especially when they're up there for a really long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and indeed, on shuttle missions, 
nutrition was important, but we always looked at nutrition as a, as a camping trip mm. on a shuttle flight that, you know, you could eat pretty much anything for two weeks and get away with it. Uh, when you're up there for a month or three months, six months, it's important. Um, and as we look to go off beyond low Earth orbit at two and three year Mars missions, um, if you run out of a nutrient on one of those missions, you're going to be in trouble. And so we talked a little bit before this and I mean, this is something people have been paying attention to as long as humans have been exploring, right? I mean, you, you almost don't think about it, but then there's some pretty real examples that people will remember. Absolutely. And I don't think they realized it. Much like today, they didn't appreciate nutrition. Yeah. You know, and I always say that everybody concedes that we're going to fly food on space missions because you got to fly food. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the idea that we need to pay attention to what's in the food um, gets lost on a lot of people. And I always say, you know, if you look back through the history books, nutrition in and of itself made or broke many of those exploration missions here on Earth. Like what? Well, the, the classic example is always scurvy, mm. vitamin C deficiency. And, you know, if you look at the, the time span between Columbus's trip and the invention of the steam engine, it's about a 400-year block there, mm -hmm. scurvy killed more than 2 million sailors. Really? And it's estimated that scurvy killed more sailors than all other causes of death combined. Hmm. And there were ships that went out with hundreds that came back with tens. It was that big a deal. And it, and it all came back to what they were eating. It all came back to what they were eating and, and what they weren't eating, that they weren't getting, weren't getting any or enough sources of vitamin C. And what did they ultimately do to solve that? I mean, I think we we usually heard like start eating or start carrying oranges and lemons. Exactly. And stuff, the, right? the, the the British were called limeys because they used to bring limes on the on the voyages, um, because they realized that uh, it was it was something in the citrus fruit. It wasn't until the 1900s that they actually isolated and realized what that chemical compound was, but they knew it was in citrus fruit. But I mean, even back then, there were kind of attempts to figure out, okay, you know, my ship is coming back a whole lot lighter than it left. Why Indeed. The, why the heck is it happening? And again, over those 400 years, there were there were advances and, and setbacks. Um, even after there was evidence that citrus fruit were the key, there were some captains that insisted that that was not it, that they maintained that fresh meat and, and clean kitchens, clean galleys hmm. was, was going to solve this. Um, and then went out and found out the hard way that that was not true. Hmm. And my, my suspicion is that fresh meat came from the fact that, you know, on those ships, when they had grain and food stored, they'd have rats stow away on the ship. And they would catch the rats, and some of the crew would eat the rats. Hmm. And the crews that ate the rats tended to do better because rats do not need vitamin C in their diet. Rats can make vitamin C. Really? So if you ate the rat, it was analogous to eating an orange— um, probably a little chewier, um, but those crews tended to do, to do better. And it wasn't until they put all that together. Well, I'm not sure they ever put the rat thing together. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, that was missing one single nutrient. Yeah. If we, on a three-year mission, run out of any vitamin, any mineral, um, it's going to be a bad trip. Well, luckily, we've come a whole lot further in the field of nutritional science Indeed. since then. I've, so what are you've been doing this for a while now? What I mean, so you're doing it with station now, but you mentioned shuttle. What were some of the kind of the early steps that you were taking in this field of spaceflight? Well, we 
we use any opportunity we can to try to understand how the body changes in weightlessness. Mm-hmm. We use a lot of analogs. We use things like bed rest studies where we put people to bed for weeks or months on end trying to see how the body changes in with disuse. Um, we've looked at vitamin D studies in the Antarctic where people don't get sunlight like on spacecraft. Um, so we study wherever and whatever we can to try to glean information about how the body changes and how we can use nutrition to help mitigate negative effects of spaceflight mm-hmm. or to optimize crew health. So we've done some studies on short-duration shuttle missions, um, but it wasn't until we started long-duration flights um, that we really started to worry about nutrient requirements and and what crews needed to eat. And our first foray into that was the Phase 1 program on the, the Russian space station Mir, and we did some studies there looking at things like calcium and uh, red blood cell metabolism and fluid fluid homeostasis. Um, and then with the advent of, uh, with the launch of uh, Expedition 1, we've been doing nutritional work in some form or other on every mission since then. So we do nutritional assessments on the space station crews where sort of working for the flight surgeon, we collect data on the crews before flight, during flight, and after flight to make sure that we send astronauts up there as healthy as can be, that we track them while they're up there to make sure they're staying healthy. Um, and then when they land, um, we go off and we collect blood samples and urine samples to see if there are any decrements that we work with the rehabilitation mm-hmm. team to get crews back to full health as quickly as possible. Well, what have you seen? So you've been doing this on station for a long time now. You, you did some stuff on Mir. What have you guys kind of, what did you start out looking for? Kind of what, what is the body needing in microgravity that it's not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily getting or how do, how do nutrition, let me put it this way, how do nutrition requirements change for an astronaut as opposed to, you know, me down here on planet Earth? Or do they? There, there are a few, there are a few nuanced differences, um, but really many of the basics still apply. Um, when I meet with the crews before flight, the first thing I tell them is that if there's only one thing I can tell you, it's that you need to eat during flight. And that sounds ridiculous, but you need to maintain your body mass. You need to get mm. enough calories in you to maintain your body mass. If you're doing that, that is 70% of the battle. Mm. And the, the reason for that is that if you're getting enough calories, everything else follows calories. So if you're getting enough calories, you're probably getting enough of the vitamins, you're probably getting enough of the minerals, you're probably getting enough fluid. Um, and when we get caloric intake right, then we start to look at other things, like are you getting enough protein, are you getting enough calcium, are you getting enough potassium, um, and we start to fine tune. But really, maintaining body mass is is goal one. We know from from many flights that if you lose weight during flight, that you'll lose more bone than you want to. You'll lose more muscle than you need to. Mm. Your cardiovascular system doesn't like it. Um, there's more oxidative damage that occurs if you're not getting enough calories. So there's a lot of negative things that come along with weight loss in astronauts. And I, I always say this is not the weight loss program you want to go on. Um, over the years, early on uh, in the MIR program, in the early station, we saw a lot of crews lose weight. There were a lot of people that maintained that, well, astronauts just lose weight in flight. We need to, we need to accept that that's normal. Yeah. And I, I always fought that. Um, and it wasn't until in 2008 was when we flew the, the what we call the A-RED, uh-huh. the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, the device that allowed really heavy resistive exercise. And what we showed 
And the first cruise that used that was that if you ate well, maintained your body mass, had good vitamin D status, and exercised hard, you could maintain your bone mineral density. And my throwdown line there was always that in 50 years of flying people in space, that was the first time we ever saw a cruise come back with the same bone mineral density they left with. Hmm. And it was by actually paying attention it to nutrition and exercise factor, not not just accepting, hey, this is this is something we got to live with. Exactly, exactly. And you know, the adage always is that you know, good nutrition won't make you an Olympic athlete, mm-hmm. but if you're an Olympic athlete, bad nutrition will ruin you. And it's 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 the same mantra that, you know, we can come up with an exercise that does a really good job at fixing muscle loss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you're not providing enough fuel to support that exercise, that exercise won't work. And then how are you guys actually making sure that the crew members are getting what they need? We, um, in two ways, again, we have an iPad app that the crews track dietary mm-hmm. intake um, that allows them to see literally at lunchtime what they need to eat for dinner to get enough calories. It's got a little bar at the bottom of the page that starts off at red, and as they eat more calories, um, it, it turns to green. Hmm. So we push them daily, hour by hour, to get to the top of that bar. Um, we track their body mass, um, and uh, if they're losing weight, again, that's that's the tell. Mm-hmm. And we've had some crew members that you know, when we say, you know, look, you're not eating enough, you're not getting enough calories, they will, you know, push back and say, look, I feel fine. You know, I feel like I'm eating, I feel like I'm eating enough. I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I always tell them that if you're losing weight, I'm right. That it's possible your metabolic rate is different. It yeah. may be lower than, than it is on earth or lower than we think it is. Uh, but again, the body weight is, is the tell that, that if your body mass is going down, um, there's something wrong. And one of the things that we've we've come to, and I don't have data to back this up, but I think one of the things that happens during flight is that food doesn't settle in your stomach the same way as it does on Earth. Really? So as you eat here on Earth, eventually your stomach will tell your brain that you're full. Yeah. In space flight, I think what happens is because the food in your, the food in your stomach is experiencing the same weightlessness, it probably is stretching that stomach more. It's probably hitting the top of your stomach more, which is signals your brain that you're done, even though you haven't really eaten that much. Mm. And I tell crews again, you've got to get food in you. And if if you're losing weight, you either need to push more food in, even when you think you're full, yeah. or you need to eat more meals. You need to spread it out during the day and snack more, whatever it takes to get more calories in you. It's actually interesting. We've we've been asked that question before. You know, does the digestive system change at all? And it's always kind of been, no, we don't think so. So that that might actually be out there still. So we're right. still learning stuff. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Are there foods that you try to make them eat more of, eat less of? Because, I, I mean, everything's pretty regulated, I would imagine. Well, there's a couple ways to, there's a couple ways to answer that. Yeah. Um, we, the food system is somewhat limited, um, and it is repetitive. So every eight days or so, they change out the containers and get a new set of the same thing every mm-hmm. eight days. Um, so there's not a lot we can tell them to do. Um, and for a lot of reasons, we don't, you know, I would say I try not to nag them on, you know, I don't want to be the guy telling them to eat more broccoli, especially if they hate <laughs> broccoli. Um, but um, trying to get a balanced meal in them um, and trying, you know, one of the challenges we have is is getting enough food up there 
enough variety of food that each individual crew member can find enough things that will make them happy. Mm. So for the crew member that doesn't like broccoli, will they eat asparagus? Will they eat green beans? Will they eat something else? Because you got to get something green in you no yeah. matter what. Um, as we look out to um, exploration missions and the challenges there, um, we want an optimal diet. We want an optimized diet. And in our view, that means more fruits and vegetables, which have phytochemicals that come along with that. It means more sources of omega-3 fatty acids, so things like salmon and fish and mm-hmm. walnuts. Um, and again, doing what we can with that personal choice um, of making sure the, crew, the crews are interested enough in eating that they're going to eat. You know, again, go back to that eight-day rotating menu. Um, I would say if you pick your eight favorite days of food and you cycle it enough, after enough times, you're going to get bored. I don't care if it's steak and lobster and whatever else, whatever you know, burnt, whatever it is you like. I feel like I've already been doing if, that if the you, last five years of my you, life. <laughs> if you eat the same thing every Tuesday, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. sooner or later, we know you get bored of that. I think every college student can attest to that. Exactly. You can only do ramen so many days in a row. <laughs> well, so what about, you know, the future? What What are you guys already looking at that you're, you're considering is going to have to change up when – because – we have crew members up in the air for six months. We had Scott Kelly up there for a year. Yep. What's going to change in the world of nutrition? What are you guys, you know, not necessarily worried about, but what problems are you already trying to solve or anticipating if someone's going to be up there for two, three years at a time? We're still there's there's a number of there's a number of serious health concerns that that we worry about. Um, that again. A six-month mission is worse than a three-month mission is worse than a two-week mission. Um, and then when you add in a year or two-year mm-hmm. mission, it, it just it, it exacerbates that. Um, we worry about things like um, bone loss and muscle loss and how your cardiovascular system works. Um, we worry about the immune system function. And all four, of those, um, all four of those are intertwined with nutrition. We know if you don't eat well, your immune system function doesn't work as well. Hmm. We know from our work in the Antarctic that if you are stressed and your vitamin D status is low, um, you will reactivate more viruses, which is a function of your immune system, than, than you want. Um, your behavior, your performance, your morale are all based on how well you're eating. How well you're sleeping goes hand in hand with how well you're eating. Hmm. So lots of different elements of human adaptation um, rely on a good food system and good food intake. And then you take into account the fact that you're in a spacecraft, you're in microgravity, um, the air is closed, so any contaminants in the air can alter that. There's some things, you know, high levels of carbon dioxide can affect different nutrient metabolism, can affect bone loss. Hmm. Um Different chemicals and contaminants in the air can affect nutrient requirements like folate and other vitamins can be exacerbated by that. Um, And one of the bigger, if not the biggest issue we chase um, is radiation. And that's one of those things that, again, it's it's, radiation exposure is higher on station than it is on Earth. But when you leave the protection of low Earth orbit, it gets really bad. So radiation exposure on a moon mission or a Mars mission... um, and how we protect from that is going to be is going to be serious, and that's something nutrition can help address. That is something that nutrition can help address. How? And you look at look at you know studies on the ground. People that eat more broccoli and cauliflower, cruciferous vegetables, mm-hmm. 
get less cancer. Wow. Do we know exactly why? No, we do yeah. not. And and we, you know, people are always looking for what vitamin is it that I can take a pill of that mm-hmm. will mitigate that. Um, we don't have that yet. Yeah. And uh, there's been a number of studies done where for a while we thought vitamin A was going to cure cancer, vitamin E was going to cure cancer. And we did long-term uh, prospective studies where, you know, 10-year studies where we looked at vitamin E supplementation or vitamin A supplementation, beta-carotene supplementation. And when they do those big studies, big controlled studies, what they find is that taking vitamins does not mitigate that risk. Hmm. But again, when you compare it to people that eat more vegetables, um, they get less cancer. Hmm. Now, there's a couple of things in, intertwined in there that you need to be careful of. One is that there are thousands of these what we call phytochemicals that occur in things like broccoli, and we don't understand all of them. So it may be that it's not just vitamin E or vitamin A. It's some mix, um, of, it's some mix yeah. of those other things. The other thing is that the more broccoli you eat, the fewer French fries you eat. The fewer, the less red meat you eat. That's true. Um, and those things likely antagonize um, oxidative damage um, and and cancer incidence. Sure. So it really, you know, I always hate to say it, but your your mother was right, and eating your vegetables really does matter. I'll make sure she does not listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what are what are some of the other major changes uh, for when we have people in space for a really long time? One thing that I had written down here, need less iron and sodium. Now, why does why does that happen? What What is the body going through that that well, becomes the case? Two different things there. One, with iron, um, your iron stores go up during spaceflight because your blood volume contracts. Hmm. So when you go into spaceflight, what happens is your blood volume goes down by about 10 to 15%. Really? Yeah. And, and again, I don't have data to back this up exactly, but what, we, what I think happens is the way... I explained this in my head, is that it's easier for the body to pump blood to your toenails than it is on Earth. You don't have gravity fighting against you, so it's easier mm-hmm. to pump the blood. You don't have blood pooling in your, you know, in your feet. Yeah. Um, so your body can get away with a, a smaller blood volume. And what happens because of that is your blood volume contracts, again, by about 10 or 15%. What happens is as you break down the red blood cells you don't need, you put that iron into stores, okay? So you don't need as much iron as you do on Earth, first of all. Second of all, when you have higher iron stores, and we know this from a lot of studies on Earth that have nothing to do with spaceflight, higher iron stores are associated with higher oxidative damage in tissues. And we've actually shown that with high the astronauts that have higher iron stores, because they ate more iron, because they had, had higher stores to begin with, have more oxidative damage to their DNA and have more bone loss secondary to that oxidative stress. So we try to minimize um, the amount of iron they're getting in their diet. Now, that's not to say, you know, we'd be happy with the RDA, which is about 8 or 10 milligrams of iron per day. Mm -hmm. Um, The standard food system right now has about 25 milligrams a day. Um, And depending on how each astronaut picks their food. Um, if you pick foods that are, you know, either high in iron, like sources of meat, or fortified foods like breakfast drinks and cereals that are fortified with iron, um, we've seen crews get 30, 40, 50 milligrams of iron a day. Mm. 
which is a good four or five, six times the RDA. Um, What's RDA? The recommended dietary allowance. Okay. So that's the, you know, when you look at a food package in the grocery store, yep. it's based on your typical dietary intake, if you will. Gotcha. Um, so we're not looking to reduce iron below what what your average person needs. Mm-hmm. But on Earth, we tend to worry about the opposite. We worry about people becoming iron deficient. Yeah. Most nutrients follow what we call a bell-shaped curve. That is that at the bottom end of a bell-shaped curve, you don't want to be in the bottom 5%. Yeah. You need but more, the reality you need more, is you don't you want to be – you don't want to have too much either. Yep. And we're starting to see that in terrestrial science that individuals that have higher iron stores have higher cardiovascular diseases, have higher um, cerebrovascular diseases, that is blood vessel um, changes and, and brain changes. Hmm. Um and again, we're seeing decrements, problems with having too much iron um, that are just as bad as problems of having too little iron. Sodium, um, on the other hand, is one of those things that we worry about crews getting too much sodium for the same reason as on Earth, because too much sodium is bad for you. But it tastes so good. And that, and that is the problem. <laughs> Not only that, it, it tastes really good, but it's cheap. Yeah. So if you want to make something taste better and not cost much, Throw some salt. A little on bit it. of salt. Yeah. Um, you could do the same thing with spices. Um, spices are a lot more expensive. Mm. So if you're a food company trying to make whatever macaroni mm-hmm. and cheese, the way you know, or soup or whatever you want, um, it's much cheaper um, and much more, much more palatable to add sodium to it. But you're not watching out for sodium for any particular reason when they're um, gravity. Well, just... one of the key. Well, there's several things we're concerned about. Um, on Earth, with sodium, you worry about blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And we're not worried about that in astronauts because blood pressure actually is a little bit lower during flight. The astronauts, by virtue of the selection process, um, typically don't have blood pressure issues. Um, high sodium levels are bad for bone, mm-hmm. um, which is something we're concerned about. Um, and there's the potential that um, high sodium intakes can exacerbate some of the fluid volume issues um, and some of the eye issues that uh, that have jumped up in recent years. And that is one of the reasons why we reformulated our food system, I think about five years ago now, to be much lower in sodium than it was. So we actually reduced the sodium content of the space foods by about 40% um, compared to what they were to try to help with some of these health issues. And the big one was, the big driver um, was eye issues. Eye issues. So, we've talked about bone and muscle, so and even radiation, but the vision issues. So, the, and for those that don't know, some of the astronauts actually experience a loss in their visual acuity. Their vision gets worse over long duration space flight, and then it doesn't always get better. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right. That we, I'll say, around eight years ago or so, nine years ago, realized that we had some crew members coming back having had eye and vision issues. I would say vision issues because it's easier to say than ophthalmologic issues. That um, is easier. And in some cases, it's a change in what we call refraction, which is your ability to focus. Mm. Um, some of them are a little more nuanced than that, where when the when the eye docs do an exam of the astronauts after flight, they see changes in the back of the eye that some astronauts have had but didn't realize they had. So it's not necessarily perceptible by the astronaut, hmm. but there's a there's a, a a varied pattern of five or so different things that occur with the eye: changes in 
ability to focus, changes in the back of the eye, what they call cotton wool spots, which are little spots that occur in the back of the eye, um, changes in the shape of the eye, number of things going on. Um, and as I said, up until about seven, eight, nine years ago, we didn't realize that was a problem. Mm. Now, when that came up, we all collectively blustered down the intracranial pressure pathway, as I call it. Mm-hmm. That is, the thinking was, the theory was that when you go into space flight, the fluid shifts and you get more blood and fluid up into your head, that that pressure inside your head pushes on the back of your eye, pushes on your optic nerve, and that intracranial pressure um, leads to these eye changes. Mm-hmm. Now, what is important to keep in mind, and the drum I continually bang, is what you said at the outset, which is some astronauts develop this. It's yeah. not all of them. It's not. So it can't just be as simple as when you go into flight, the fluid goes up, pushes on your eye. Because they all have that. Right. They all have that. We, we At one point, and there's still some thinking that it might be related to carbon dioxide, because carbon dioxide in the air is higher during spaceflight than it is on Earth. Mm. The cabin on CO... On the, the, Cabin CO2 on ISS is higher than the CO2 you and I are breathing. Hmm. Although maybe not in this room. Um, <laughs> There's good airflow in here. It's a small <laughs> room. There's good airflow. Okay. No worries. Um, it, may be, it may be CO2. It may be fluid shifts. It may be something else. Mm-hmm. But what we always come back to is that it is only affecting some of the astronauts. Now, when this came up, we went to the flight docs and said, look, you know, we've got a lot of data. We've done this experiment on space station. We've collected blood. We've collected urine. We've looked at a lot of nutritional markers and biochemistry markers. Um, maybe we have something that could help understand this. Mm-hmm. And when we dug into the data, and it, 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 today's February 16th. It was February 18th of 2011 that my colleague Sarah Zwart came into my office and said, there's something going on with one carbon metabolism. And without boring you with all the details, what she found was differences in the blood biochemistry of the astronauts that had these vision issues Hmm. before flight. Before flight? Before flight. We saw differences in the blood in astronauts that subsequently developed eye issues. So with that, you could potentially tell before somebody even went into space. Indeed. Whether or not they had that issue. Indeed. Is and something... we, so we followed up on that. We we presented that to life sciences management. We ruled out as many things as we could, you know, the possibility that it was vitamin deficiencies or mm-hmm. um, kidney function or all these different things. We, we ruled those all out. And what we then hypothesized was that it was related to genetics, that there were genetic differences in the literature, we knew there were genetic differences that affected the chemicals we were looking at. And these affect the population. And that's sort of like blood types, that people have different blood types. Yeah. You have the blood type A or B or O. Um, there's not a good blood type or a bad blood type. There's just different blood types. Mm-hmm. Um, there's differences in, in genetics that affect these chemicals. And we hypothesized that that may be why these chemical differences are there. And there may be something related to that, which is causing those individuals to be predisposed to developing these eye issues on space station. So we did a study where we proposed looking at a handful of these genetic differences. 
we sat down with 70 astronauts and said, you know, look, here's the story. Here's, here's the data we've got. Here's the, the theory. We'd like to collect some blood from you and look at your genes. We sat down with 70 astronauts, and all 70 of them agreed to oh, give wow. us blood, which gives an idea of how compelling the story was to them and how big a deal this is to astronauts and how much they want to understand this to figure this out. I always say they're incredibly selfless because they're basically guinea pigs. Yeah, absolutely. While they're up there. So absolutely. it's incredible that they're... And, and the astronauts as a whole are great about doing experiments, but I always, you know, I've always said all the astronauts will never agree to anything. That, you know, there's always 95% of them. There's always one or two that are like, well, I don't like to collect blood or I don't yeah, want to do that yeah. cardiovascular study or I don't want to do that sleep study. Um, I've never seen everybody sign up for a study until now. And so, so it's still ongoing? It, we're, we're in stage two now. But when we collected the blood, we, we did a small look at the genetics and found indeed that there was a genetic predisposition for some astronauts to develop these eye issues. Hmm. And we now need to follow up on that. We're doing some more extended work. Again, I could talk to you a long time about that, but I, I'd be more boring than I already am. Um, and it gets pretty gnarly into the genetics and the biochemistry. But um, I'm convinced that we are at the cusp of this thing. And if we can work it out to where we can study this in a little more detail, that we will, we will solve this problem. Wow. To where we can, we can get into what we call personalized medicine. And we can look and say, okay, we know these individuals are going to be are at risk of this developing. Here's how we go try to counteract that. Really, and so that's that's the important part. Is it's not just identifying, hey, this is going to happen to you. It's hey, this might happen to you, and this and is here's how, how we're we fix stop it. it. Absolutely. And so we've come all the way from why is half of my ship dying from some crazy thing to now we're we're looking at eyes. So it seems like obviously it's a constantly evolving field. Are there other things or anything on the horizon that you think you're going to be diving into next? Well, right now the. the the vision, the vision thing, as I call it, is the is the biggest thing we're chasing. Yeah, um, and that is one of the top concerns that that NASA management has in terms of of health risks. Um, one of the interesting spinoffs of the of the work that we've done is that as we wrote up the genetic data and we published that in a scientific paper, one of the realizations we came to was that the astronauts that developed these vision issues had a long list of characteristics. This chemistry, the genetics, um, changes in, in their, their retinal nerves, mm. um, changes in some of their hormones. There was a list of about eight or nine things that we had that we found a clinical population that had the exact same set of characteristics. And that is women with polycystic ovary syndrome. Really? Really. Polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS as they call it, is the leading cause of infertility in women. It affects 10 to 20% of women, which is a staggering incidence. And what we maintain is that, you know, I talked a lot about analogs, that we look at the Antarctic as an analog to study vitamin D, or we look at bed rest as an analog for studying bone loss. Yeah. we maintain that women with polycystic ovary syndrome might be the analog population we need to study to figure out what's different about them 
and how that relates to astronauts during spaceflight. Gotcha. I was wondering, like, what? So because, you find that out. What's what's the purpose of finding that out? It is because we could then study their cardiovascular function. We could study their eyes. We could study, you know, different elements of their physiology to understand what's different about them. Because theoretically, if we flew women with PCOS in space, again, theoretically, they would all develop these eye issues. Yeah. Um, we've started a study that we're doing with the Mayo Clinic up in Minnesota, working with an endocrinologist who specializes in PCOS and uh, a neuro a neuro-ophthalmologist, which is even harder to say, a neuro-ophthalmologist that specializes in intracranial hypertension, and they're off recruiting women with PCOS patients with intracranial hypertension where they're collecting blood mm. and shipping them to us and doing eye exams. And again, we hope to piece together the first bits of that so we can then test our hypotheses for what we think is the relationship between your genetics and your eyes and how those change during spaceflight. Hmm. So that, you know, again, ultimately those studies can help us better understand how to, to prevent astronauts from having eye issues. The more the more the more staggering thing is that we might be able to help terrestrial medicine to understand how to better treat individuals with that syndrome. Yeah. Wow. And I, I'm always struck by um, one of the cases where we published the genetic data uh, back in 2016. And, and when we published the paper, NASA uh, put a story on the web about, you know, that we published a study and what we found and mm-hmm. what, what it meant. And I got an email from a, a woman working at one of the other NASA centers who asked if we'd looked at this one eye, eye issue called papilledema. Um, and I said, well, in our paper, we called her cordial folds, but I'm told they're about the same thing. But the, yes, we did, and here's a copy of the paper. And she wrote back and said, well, to share too much, um, I, six, seven years ago, was diagnosed with papilledema that there was some sort of pressure pushing on the back of my eye that they couldn't figure out why. Mm. Along the way, I was diagnosed with B12 deficiency, which is one of the things intertwined with the genetics we're looking at. Um, And, oh, yeah, by the way, she's got PCOS. Wow. And that could be a coincidence. Um, I I don't think so. Wow. And she said when she mentioned to her physicians that maybe these things were interrelated, um, and she said they scoffed at her and said, no, that that can't be. So, again, we talk a lot about spinoffs from the space program. Um, it, it is mind-boggling to think that by studying this in more depth, yeah. uh, we might be able to help 10 to 20% of the population. Wow. Well, wow. I've said that like a million times already, but like wow. Uh, Keep going. So, besides the vision... Everything that we've been learning on the space station about trying to solve the vision issue, bones, muscle, cardiovascular, everything. How are you feeling with what we know right now about supporting the nutrition for our crew, say, going to Mars, going into space for two years? It, again, the, the human research program has, has uh, a top four, if you will. Um, and I don't mean to speak for HRP, but their top four are radiation um, behavior and performance, um, vision, and food. Mm-hmm. And and I say food intentionally. It's not nutrition because the reality is for a Mars mission, the food is probably going to go to Mars before the crew leaves Earth. 
So we need to have a food system that is stable for five years. Meaning you could go to the grocery store right now, pack your pantry, and in five years still be eating that food and make sure that's got everything you need in it. And I imagine there's a and million and one challenges. That's extremely but... tough to do. Yeah. It's extremely tough to do. Um, the food system folks are working really hard on developing foods that are more stable, on working on packaging that will help facilitate that. Um, but again, when you think about it, when you find something in the back of your pantry that's been in there for a while, it's got an expiration date on it. The expiration date is because it probably doesn't taste that good. The reason it probably doesn't taste that good after that date um, is because the nutrients that are in there break down mm. and make other chemicals that aren't what they were supposed to be, so it tastes funky or it looks funky. Um, so from a pure food point of view, there's a lot of issues. From a nutrition point of view, um, we need to make sure we've got the basics down. Um, one, of the, one of the nice things we have on Space Station is that every time a vehicle goes up, there's some fresh food in there. Yeah. There's, you know, oranges and lemons and apples and um, different types of fruits and vegetables. Got to stave off the scurvy. Exactly. And we really don't know how much that little bit of fresh food um, mitigates concerns we have about the rest of the food system. Mm. We're not going to have the ability to do that with a Mars crew. So we need to make very sure of that. We need to make very sure the food, again, is good enough that the crew is going to want to eat it. We're going to make sure that the crew is motivated enough that they're going to want to eat it, that they're exercising hard enough to maintain their body to keep, again, that whole thing going. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, when you look at scientists, we all tend to focus on our little system. So there's a bone lab and a muscle lab and a cardiovascular yeah, lab and yeah. a nutrition lab. Um, we're dealing with a human, um, and that whole thing has to work. And that um, still gives me a, a significant amount of pause. We don't really know what extent the effects of the radiation system are going to be. Um, chronic, relatively low dose, but much higher than on Earth. Um, levels of radiation for long periods of time can affect, you know, I've heard, I was at a meeting last week where the, the radiation folks talked about that and talked about how, you know, you get, um, you get dementia-like problems with um, extended radiation exposure. Hmm. And again, from a nutrition point of view, I will tell you that um, in the elderly, with dementia and cognition problems, um, folate, which is one of the vitamins, vitamin B12, are key nutrients when it comes to cognition. Mm. And one of the things that we think is going on is that radiation affects the ability to get those vitamins into the brain. So there are a lot of challenges ahead of us that we really do not understand. Um, if we had a vehicle that was ready to go tomorrow, we had a food system that was ready to go tomorrow. Um, do we know enough about what it really is going to take to protect crews on a three-year trip to Mars? Um, it, it, those really are scary questions. Yeah. Really, they are. Well, luckily, we still got an international space station and some time to figure all that out. I've taken up a bunch of your time or anything else that I didn't hit on that you're dying to tell the world about nutritional biochemistry. No, um, I think we've hit all. The, we've hit most of the key points. Um, we, you know, are, are working as hard as we can, um, and and I always like to step back from the realization that, you know, I get to come sit here with you and tell you the great stuff we're doing. Realize I've got a lab full of folks that are back in the lab working hard. 
um, that are doing the really hard work, and and they should get most of the credit. Um, but I don't let them out of the lab, so they're they're working. <laughs> um, but it really is a phenomenal team effort that helps to bring all this together. How's their vitamin um, D intake? Um, we 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 let them out in the sun every once in a while. Um, but it is it is a, a tremendous team effort within our group, and then we work with. Um, a number of other groups. We work with the cardiovascular lab to try to understand mm-hmm. a lot of the cardiovascular and vision issues that we've talked about. Work with the immune lab, work with the muscle lab. We work with um, a lot of other folks. So there really is a tremendous um, team environment trying to pull this thing together. It's not, it really is not just me. Well, you, you're all doing some incredible work right now and looking forward to the next breakthroughs in the years to come and Thanks. what the future holds. Again, I was just talking with Dr. Scott Smith, the manager of nutritional biochemistry here at the Johnson Space Center. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for sticking around to the end. If you liked that, go check out all of the earlier episodes of Houston We Had a Podcast and check out some of our other NASA podcasts like Gravity Assist and NASA in Silicon Valley to learn even more about what NASA's doing right now. To learn more about the International Space Station, which is the focus on a lot of our stuff here at the Johnson Space Center, you can always go to nasa.gov ISS or follow us on social media. We have a Facebook page, a Twitter page at space underscore station, and on Instagram at ISS. And on any of those platforms, you can use the hashtag AskNASA to submit your idea for a potential podcast. This podcast was recorded on February 16th. Special thanks to Kathy Reeves, Kelly Humphreys, Isidro Reyna, Greg Wiseman, and Gary Jordan. And of course, to my guest, Dr. Scott Smith, for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.